Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. And now we come to the plagues. Moses confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses to let my people go um, there. And so we have plagues, then we have a Passover, and then we have the dramatic escape from slavery. We're told that Moses is 80 years old. And Aaron, his older brother, is 83. These are not spring chickens. These are not upstart young men. These are seasoned, older gentlemen. And it reminds us that we remain vital and important and could have a very important role to play in our circle of context, even as we get a little bit older. Depending on your translation, the plagues may be laid out and called by a little bit different name. In my Bible, here are the order that they come in. We get the water being turned into blood, the plague of frogs, swarming lice, swarming insects, sick animals, skin sores and blisters on the people and the animals, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. In the scientific world, there are scholars who say that one of these plagues can trigger the next one. There is a particular kind of algae that when it grows out of uh, proportion, it turns the water of the Nile red and it will kill the fish. The water turning to blood and being overgrown with the algae could have driven the frogs out of and away from the banks of the river and into the cities. The frogs dying in the cities, their decaying bodies, could have created lice. Those lice could have brought insects that eat the lice. Those insects biting the animals could have created the sickness in the animals. It also could have created the skin sores and blisters that's on everybody. If you've ever been bitten by a horsefly, um, bot flies there. Then comes the natural disasters. The, the hail comes and begins to destroy the crops. Uh, a, a plague of locusts, swarms of locusts come in and eat whatever is left. An eclipse could explain the darkness that covers the land, although three days is a very long time. That could have been... Um, any other forms of natural disasters that blotted out the um, sun. And one of the most interesting theories I've heard about the death of the firstborn had to do with the practice of Egyptians of giving the oldest son double portion. When food was scarce or when a family was poor, they gave the firstborn child twice as much as anyone else at the table because they needed the firstborn child to survive. They needed that child to live. And so everyone else kind of got starved if it meant the firstborn survived. If the darkness, the humidity, all of these kinds of um, plagues and stuff going on could have created a form of mold in the meal, in the flour and the grain. And if it was toxic and deadly, 
then feeding it to the firstborn, a double portion would have made that child the one at greatest risk for dying. Now, I find all of those things interesting. What I don't find is any of those things compelling enough to tell me that God was not involved in what was going on. I have no problem with the God of creation using the principles and the processes that God created to accomplish his goals and his missions. So I'm okay with God having used these natural sequence of events. What would be interesting to me is that what is probably at least four chains of events are all coming at the same time that Moses is appealing for the people to be let go. We have what started with the water being turned into blood all the way down to the skin sores and blisters is one chain of events. We have the natural disaster of the hail as another one. We then have the locusts eating the crops, which is a separate event. And then a natural disaster in the form of the darkness, some sort of eclipse or um, volcanic eruption that, that causes there to be a lack of sunlight for a number of days. And then the death of the firstborn could be linked back to any of these other events. All of this triggers the Passover And so we see around chapter 12, we've inserted the ritual and the way that Passover is observed. This is inserted later because the Passover is not a fully developed ritual celebration at this point. It's simply occurring for the first time. But it makes sense that they would insert this in the story here as they tell the story of why they observe Passover. Then here's how we observe Passover. Notice that there's not to be any waste. There's going to be just enough for everyone. And the lamb or the goat is to be flawless. They're to watch it, to get to know it, to bring it into their home, which is going to make it a little harder to kill. And then we're going to smear the blood on the doorpost to be covered by the blood. And then they're going to eat a meal of roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, dressed and ready to go, always prepared. There are so many parallels for us in that. We see that Jesus was watched and observed in the temple for three days um, before he was arrested, betrayed, arrested, and killed. We escape judgment and ultimate death because we are covered by the blood of Jesus that he shed for us. Um, We must apply it to the doorposts of our heart and our lives. And we, as his followers and disciples, are always to be ready, always prepared for where God is leading us and what is having us to do. Even the presence of yeast, yeast is a symbol of sin. And so during Passover for seven days, it's actually the festival of unleavened bread, which comes right at Passover. The two are now commingled together. And they have become part of one celebration. Seven is the biblical number of completion. Yeast represents sin. And the idea is that we want to get all of the sin out of our lives. The salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ is to completely remove sin from us. As Methodist Christians, John Wesley talked about sanctification. God's provenient grace draws us into relationship. God's justifying grace translates us from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of God. But it is God's sanctifying grace, his ongoing work in our lives, that actually makes us more like Christ. 
that justifying grace, that conversion, that salvation, however that comes in our life, is a beginning point and not an ending point. We're on an ongoing journey of becoming more like Christ, and our goal is to be perfected in love. Jesus said, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. No goal short of absolutely following Jesus wholly and completely is to be um, settled for in our lives. We also see the dedication of the oldest offspring. Firstborn males are to be ransomed or sacrificed. And once the meal has been eaten, the Hebrew people pack their stuff and they leave. And we see God leading them. And God takes them on a path that they can manage to navigate. He takes them on the path that he knows he can lead them to success. It's not always the most direct path. Isn't that how it happens in our lives? We sometimes feel like God is having us meander through the wilderness, using that journey to prepare us and ready us for the things that we will find when we finally get there. Remember that Joseph said he wanted his bones to go with them when they left. He knew they would never stay forever, and they do honor that request. God leads them as a cloud by day and fire by night. One of the depictions that we have is this enormous brazier, something along the lines of the Olympic brazier where they light it um, during the Olympic Games. And it was on a tall pole. They carried it. And during the day, the smoke coming off of it would have been the cloud that they followed, representing God. And at night, the embers glowing in that brazier would have represented God's presence as God led them. It's very much the way when we come into church and we process in the light, the acolyte carries it and lights the candles, we process in the cross. That light represents Jesus as the light of the world, leading us, leading us into the presence of God, leading us into a spirit of worship in the presence of God. Then there's the dramatic crossing of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Um, They get trapped between a rock and a hard place, or in this case, between Pharaoh and the Reed Sea. And the word says that um, the wind pushes back the water. It blows all night long. Can you imagine what that sounded like to hear the wind blowing all night long and to get up the next morning and see there's enough dry land to pass through? We have a victory song from Moses and from Aaron's sister. This would have been Miriam. We're going to get her name um, a little bit later. I think it's interesting that that she's described as Aaron's sister and not as Moses' sister. And even after all that they have seen, all all the plagues, experiencing the Passover, escaping, miraculously crossing through the Reed Sea, the people are still going to complain. They're going to complain about bitter water, and what do they do? They turn on their leader, the person who liberated them, the person to whom they ought to be grateful, they turn on and get angry with. It is so easy for us to forget our blessings. At the first little bit of hardship, we turn and want to forget being thankful for all that we have been given. We're far too quick to turn on those who are only after our best interest and want good things for us. And it would help us if we would just pause for just a moment. 
So this one is turning out to be a pretty lengthy podcast, and I apologize for that, but there was an awful lot to cover in these chapters of Exodus. I've only hit the high high points. But what I want us to notice right here at the very beginning is that God is calling the Hebrew people, the Israelites, to be his people, to be a light to the nations. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to others, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Here, the Hebrew people are liberated. They are saved. They are brought out of Egypt very dramatically in order to be God's people, to be a channel of blessing for the whole world, to be the city set on a hill, the example for everyone. The story of Exodus is not only a struggle against injustice, it is also a struggle for God's intention for all humanity, which is a life free of oppression, freedom through God's plan, and a life of grateful obedience in deep relationship with God. The book of Exodus focuses on what it means to live as the redeemed people of God. And over and over, we're going to see examples of the humanity's failure to be able to live into that relationship and why God has to continue drawing us back with conviction, with love, with mercy, with grace. And ultimately, the story will lead us to Jesus Christ. I hope you're enjoying this journey through Exodus. So much wonderful stuff happening this week. I'm excited to see what lays ahead and discussing it with you and hearing what stands out to you.